stand? We're going to be in uh, John chapter 10. Stand for the reading of scripture. Andrew and Sarah, do say hi and thank you guys um, for the rest and that they missed you. You told me to preach it today, so I guess I will. John 10, um, I've changed my mind. We're not going to do verses 11 through 18. We're actually going to do verses 1 through 10. The word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of a strangers or of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. You all may be seated. Uh, In Scripture, God often speaks of his people as a flock of sheep. And it's a helpful illustration for sheep are prone to wander from the safety of the fold. They can easily be led away by their natural desire for good pasture and fresh water. And this is problematic because uh, sheep are defenseless creatures. There's very little a sheep can do to protect themselves from predators. All they can do is run and not very fast. And they can bite, but their teeth are made to chew up uh, grass, so it's not much of a bite. And then they can scream out. But none of those things are enough to turn away a wolf. Wolves will make a quick meal out of stray sheep. This is why we are like sheep. We too need guidance and protection. We need someone who will lead us safely to the green pastures of true doctrine. We need someone who will drive away the predators that seek to feed off of us through manipulation and and false teaching. We need a shepherd. So this is why in Scripture, God often speaks of himself or those he appoints to represent him as shepherds. David The shepherd king of Israel understood this well. In Psalm 95, he says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he's our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. David also wrote the shepherd song, Psalm 23. There he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is a shepherd. To his people. He leads them by his very voice. Again in Psalm 23, David says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. God's voice, that is his speech or word, 
leads us into life. His word is often mediated through human leaders. These men, uh, too, are called shepherds. In the New Testament, we call them pastors. The word pastor comes from the Latin pastorium, which means to lead to pasture, set to grazing, cause to eat. And you can use the titles interchangeably as they, they mean the exact same thing. Pastor means shepherd, shepherd means pastor. God set up shepherds over Israel. Moses was a shepherd under Jephro. Remember that? Then God called him from those flocks to be the shepherd over his flock. And in Numbers 27, Moses on the verge of death says, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And this becomes a major theme in the history of the Old Testament church. Is Israel being led by good shepherds? Or have they fallen under the leadership of false shepherds? God does not take kindly to false shepherds because they are nothing more than opportunists. They're predators. They're wolves. Listen to the voice of God in Ezekiel 34. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and close yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with forth, force and, um, and severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. You can read the rest of it. He goes on. He has a lot more to say. But in Matthew, well, a church led by self-seeking and self-satisfying pastors will always be in disarray. That was the case for the ancient uh, church, Israel. And so it was for Israel during Christ's visitation. In Matthew chapter 9, we read, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And one of my favorite verses in scripture, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The very thing Moses wanted to keep from happening and the very thing that happened under the false shepherds of Israel. This is demonstrated vividly In John chapter 9, right before our text, there Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath. And this upset the Pharisees. So they cross-examine the the formerly blind man. And this is, listen to it, this is more humor in Scripture. I love the the funny dialogue in Scripture. It's just, uh, well, so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, 
You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. It's an amazing thing. You know who this guy is? And here is a blind man that can see you right now. Well, know that God does not hear, or excuse me, we know that God does not hear uh, sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. Now put him out, uh, it means more than just like removing him, like go outside. It meant they kicked him out of the synagogue. Not just for a moment, but permanently. He was kicked out of the church. Why was he kicked out of the church? For testifying that Jesus was sent by God. And that is all important background for our text. First in verses 1 through 6, we uh, get this, this figure of speech, this picture. And I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, a lot of this stuff was really hard to understand what he was talking about. I am the door, climbing over walls. What does this all mean? And in the cities during that time in history, and part of it, this is hard for us to understand because many kids don't even know where milk comes from. It comes from cows, not from ingles. Um, we, we don't grow up dealing with farms anymore. And so this... Not only is this 2,000 years ago, but it's very different from our industrialized society. But in the cities back then, there were these huge sheepfolds. They're like pens. And they had high walls all around them and were guarded by a hired man, a doorkeeper. The shepherds uh, from, that lived around the city would bring all their sheep to the sheepfold for the evening. And it was a single walled-in space without any compartments. It's just a big old pen. They would stick them all in there. And in the morning, the shepherds would return and they would call their sheep. And the sheep and the shepherd, they intimately know, uh, knew each other. Most of, uh, most of them had been born under the care of that shepherd. Right? So he's known them since they were little, little lambs. Uh, so when he calls, they recognize his voice. It is the voice that had led them safely to green pastures. I don't know. I, I grew up on a farm for a portion of my life. And... Uh, and it's amazing the things that you can call to you, right? We learned how to call cows. I would call the cats. We had a lot of cats on the farm um, because we had to keep the rats away. And they all come running to you and they come out of everywhere and just appear and you're surrounded by 30 cats that want some cat food. Um, well, the shepherd would call. He had his particular call and he would call the sheep and they would come right to him because they knew that voice. That's the voice that had led them safely to green pastures many times. Now, Jesus uses this analogy to explain the nature of his ministry. However, in verse 6, he says, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he was saying to them. They didn't, they didn't know what he was talking about. Now, I think Christ is making two, two main points. First, he's addressing counterfeit shepherds. In verse 1, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. And false shepherds always have a way of weaseling into the church. 
Find our way to get in positions of authority. Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in Galatians or something very similar. Chapter 2, he says, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Listen to those words. Crept in unnoticed, uh, secretly brought in, sneaked in to spy out. I wonder if people... Uh, really believe this to be true. Last year at the General Assembly of our denomination, a pastor stood up and exhorted the assembly not to question the motives of their fellow pastors. Don't question the motives of our fellow pastors. Why not? Why can't we? Do the words of Christ here, Jude and Paul, not apply to the PCA? Have we somehow managed to keep out all the false shepherds? They don't creep in here. They don't, they're not secretly brought in here to spy out our liberties. Our walls are that high. It's one thing to call us to conduct ourselves in a way honoring God. That we should do, without a doubt. We should have respect for the office and deal with it in a way that's respectful. But it's another to suggest that all honor God with their motives. We know that just isn't true. The PCA has false shepherds just as Israel had false shepherds. That should not be a controversial thing to say. How can you spot a false shepherd, though? Well, partially by who makes up his congregation. In the last chapter, the Pharisees were quick to put out the formerly blind man because he spoke truth that they didn't want to hear. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. So then... Who made up their congregation? Well, not the people testifying of Christ. It was those that agreed with them. Or at the very least, those that bit their tongue out of fear because they didn't want to get excommunicated. You don't get a congregation full of moralists, legalists, or the scandalous with a good pastor. They simply won't put up with them. And he won't put up with them. In general, congregations are a reflection of their pastor's And pastors are a reflection of their congregation in general. If a church doesn't welcome truth speakers like the formerly blind man, then they aren't sheepfolds, they're pig pens. Which leads us to the second point. Christ is addressing the nature of true sheep, true Christians. In verse 3, Jesus says to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Believers respond to God's truth favorably. They listen to God's voice because they know God and God knows them. It says he calls his own sheep by name. Isn't that wonderful? God knows your name. You're not like number, you know, nine billion and three. You're not just a number to God. You're a person. He knows your name. Someday you'll hear him say your name. It's amazing. 
He's called you to himself by a spirit working to the gospel of his son. You once were a nameless goat wandering through the rocky wilderness, but God called you into his flock, and now he feeds you the best pasture. His spirits open your eyes and ears to the truth. You now listen to his voice. That's what it means to be a Christian. You listen to his voice. You're hungry for it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is what John's talking about in his first epistle. He says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So Christians listen to God's word and they do so eagerly. They're hungry to be taught God's word. But those that don't listen to, um, well, well, verse 5 says uh, that Christians or true sheep don't listen to the voice of a stranger, a false shepherd. And those that do probably aren't Christians. That's the connection here. That is the implication. Those that are always bucking against God's word, that are always mad at what God's word says. It's one thing if they're mad at your opinion on something. There are subjective matters. There are things that we're allowed to disagree on. But there are very clear things laid out in Scripture. And the people that buck against that, that's proof that they don't know the voice of the shepherd. They're not listening to his word. They're not following him into green pastures. So we must love God's truth, especially the hard parts. There are a lot of parts in Scripture that I have a hard time understanding what's going on. There's things that have stumbled me at a time, you know, or two. Um, but God, God knows better. I don't, I'm a little, I'm a little sheep. I wander astray. It's good to listen to him and trust him. Be like the formerly blind man. He was absolutely unashamed of Jesus Christ. It says that, uh, in that, in chapter nine, it says the parents didn't want to answer the Pharisees because they knew if they answered that they would put him out of the synagogue. So the parents said, You ask him, he's of age. So this guy knew what was at stake. And you can hear it in his tone. His eyes have been open, quite literally, but also spiritually. And that's why he was unashamed. Fall in love with good doctrine. Love doctrine. Doctrine is teaching, it's good. And conversely, cultivate a hatred of false doctrine and the voice of a stranger. They are thieves and they're robbers, and they will not lead you to life. Now, in verse uh, 7 through 10, after, remember, the original audience didn't understand this, and I, I hope you do. Ask yourself, do I get this? Do I understand? Do I understand what it means to respond to God's voice, to follow him, to love his word, to turn away from false doctrine? Well, they didn't, and Jesus is very patient, so he kindly gives them another figure of speech to help them understand and this is where he says, I am the door. For the long, longest time, I couldn't wrap my mind around what this meant. I, I imagined like Jesus up like this and like you could open him. <laughs> I just didn't know what it meant. And I thought it's just a really weird analogy, a weird allegory that wasn't helpful to me. But in this section, what it's talking about is another type of sheepfold uh, that was common in that time too. And this sort of pen 
was much less fortified. It didn't have these real high walls. It didn't have a, a, a paid doorkeeper. It really is just an enclosure made with small stone walls with a single opening. And you've probably seen these if you've looked through any books of Near Eastern culture. So just little stacked up stones. And they would bring the sheep in there again at, uh, at the evening. And then there was no door. There was just an opening. And the shepherd, he would lay down in that doorway and go to sleep to keep the sheep in. The shepherd was literally the door to the sheepfold. You had to come through him to get in there. And you had to go through him to get out. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He is the door. There is no other way into the sheepfold. If you want life, you want eternal life, abundant life, there's only one door. And this is something Jesus stresses over and over again in the I am statements. In John 14, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts 4.12, Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. You must go through Jesus to enter into life. He's a doorway. This, is, this falls out of favor routinely. The fact that Christ is the exclusive way to God. In our own history, the American Presbyterian Church, we uh, went through a period about 100 years ago where our missionaries were going out and, um, and they became what we call pluralists. They would believe that there's multiple ways to come to God. Right? Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, they all had truth. They were uh, pathways that all led to the same spot. And that led to a lot of trouble. And a man named Machen started a, had to start a missionary board just to get people that actually believe the gospel to send out. And it caused all sorts of trouble in a war. And that led to the uh, foundation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is, a, is like a sister denomination to us. And so we, we have this happening again where people are ashamed to say that Jesus is the only way. Back when Larry King still had a talk show, anytime he had a pastor on there, he would ask them if Jesus is the only way to heaven, and if all other ways lead to hell. So Joel Olstein comes on there and waffles right away. I can't say. And John MacArthur, who I differ from in a lot of ways theologically, but I always love MacArthur got on there because MacArthur was unashamed of the gospel. Absolutely, he's the only way to heaven. And yes, anyone that doesn't enter through him will go to hell and not even blink. And Larry King uh, it, it just kind of put Larry King back on his heels. And it was beautiful. It's a message of hope. If, if there's other ways to God, if all ways lead to God, what were those missionaries doing? Why'd they have to take the gospel to anyone? They just want to be loved by the world. Now there's others that promise life. In verse eight, Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. And in the immediate context, he has the Pharisees in mind in chapter 9. They, they don't care about the well-being of that man. The man was blind and now he can see. And they're mad that that happened on the Sabbath. They're mad that he's giving Jesus the honor due to him. When he calls Jesus a prophet in that chapter, he's probably talking about the, the, the messianic 
prophecy that there would be a prophet greater than Moses. Which if he's doing that, I just love that blind man. I love him because remember they said, we're disciples of Moses. And he's saying, well, Moses said a prophet would come. And Jesus is that prophet. It's beautiful. But it applies to all false teachers. Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, an American creation. Richard Dawkins, he's a popular, um, well, he claims to be a scientist, but he's just like a fourth-rate philosopher. Um, And then, of course, Joel Osteen right now is the big health and wealth preacher. We cycle through them every so often. Um, There was one that had the Crystal Cathedral back when I was a kid. What's that guy's name? Robert Robert Schuller. Yeah. Um, But... uh, it refers to all these guys that promise life but can't deliver. They all come up with doctrines that call you to trust in yourself ultimately as your savior. That's what Islam says. Do these things and you can enter into a paradise. A paradise that's awful lot like this world. Um, Joseph Smith said the same thing. They got crazy things going on. Handshakes and holy underwear and all sorts of other weird stuff. But they actually teach that you can become your own god and get your own planet. Some of us are trying just to manage our own yard. Um, Richard Dawkins tells us to, uh, that we, we're just highly evolved animals and we should give in to our pleasure like the animals do. I've had gerbils that ate their own. Joel Osteen um, preaches that positive thoughts and just having a good attitude and, uh, and get, of course, giving money will lead to salvation. Every last one of them made some sort of promise. But they're not the door to the sheepfold, and neither are you. You are not your own salvation. Only Christ is, Jesus is. Only through him can you find the good life. These false shepherds are thieves that come only to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember God's word back in Ezekiel. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. All these false shepherds, they want to profit from you. Osteen preaches a prosperity gospel that promises people their best life now. That's his bestseller book. Has anyone read it? I haven't. No? Tell me afterwards if you don't want to raise your hand. What best life does he mean? What best life? Well, he means stuff. Things, money, house, horses, cars, swimming pools. It's a materialistic gospel for materialistic people. In his book, he writes, God has already done everything he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare the words of faith and victory over yourself and over your family. Now, how, how, how's the, what's the proper way to declare the words of faith and victory over your family? Well, he goes on to say, if you're believing for your child to find God, go help somebody else's child to develop a relationship with God. If you're struggling financially, go out and help someone who has less than you have. If you want to reap financial blessings, you must sow financial seeds in the lives of others. If you want to see healings and restoration come to your life, go out and help someone else get well. And now the deacons will take up an offering. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. 
He takes up an offering. Osteen lives in a gated 17,000 square foot ma- mansion worth $10.5 million. But don't worry, he has a second house that's much more humble. It's only worth a mere $2.9 million. You know, only 50 rooms. This, he may have a really shiny smile. The guy could sell cars. And he may be all sweet, but he's a false shepherd fleecing the sheep to live his best life now. This is the nature of all false teachers. And they call your eyes away from heavenly life to earthly things. And remember, not all false shepherds are as blatant as Osteen. Many, especially early in their ministries, are much more subtle. I think of one. He's not. He is a teacher. But there is a Christian musician named Derek Webb that I was really influenced by early on. He was part of the group Cademan's Call. And he, his first album, she, uh, she Must and Shall Go Free, is just full of wonderful hymns. It's a, it's a great album. And we went to see him in concert a couple times. And I remember each album that came out got a little softer on the gospel and more progressive on social issues. And eventually there was an album that came out that seemed to suggest that, that Christians didn't really love homosexuals and it really wasn't that bad. But it was very ambiguous. I mean, he was playing around, trying to be um, controversial. And then, then it comes out that he had committed adultery on his wife multiple times. And then, last year I saw that he was at a bar where a guy tried to pick him up. And then he said he's gender fluid now. Couldn't tell if he was joking or not. But still, it's not a joke you should make. And what we see is little things, little divergences. They grow to be bigger and bigger. So maybe your false shepherd that you're being influenced by out there in the world and the books you read, maybe they're not as blatant as Osteen. But there are some, even our own denomination. We have Reformed pastors They're saying that homosexual desires that come from within aren't sinful. You might feel like you hear that a lot on Sundays. That's kind of one of the skirmish lines right now in in the culture, in our denomination. We've got to keep talking about it. Because anything unnatural that comes from within is sin. Anything. Greed, lust, coveting, homosexual desires. So now they're saying those things aren't sinful and even God could work through, to them, work through them to bring in glorious culture in the world to be. So those men that are going to say that now, but this will in time lead to further compromise. Soon these men will be excusing homosexual behavior. They do not love sinners. They are not good shepherds. If they did, they would call them away from debased earthly pleasure to the abundant life that we have in Christ. They would call them to the good shepherd. So it's easy. I don't like to use Osteen as an example because it's kind of easy. I know a lot of you don't read his book and a lot of you haven't been directly influenced by him. But he's powerful out there. And it's good to use that easy example and now say, where is this? Where are you being influenced? Are you going to the good word? Are you paying attention? Uh, Are you being a Berean? Are you in your Bible? Are Are you listening during the sermons carefully? Are you feeding on it? 
the way that we are brought into uh, the sheepfold is by the preaching of God's word. God works in that. And the way we grow is by the preaching of God's word. We're being led into truth. The life that Jesus offers, the abundant life, and we'll talk about this more tonight. The abundant life isn't just material things. I mean, if you've lived long enough, you've gotten more stuff. Every time I move, the moving trucks get bigger. And my life hasn't been better because of the, the stuff that I have in there. That's not what makes life good. That's not the abundant life. It's, it's a qualitative difference. It's that I have peace of conscience with God. I'm, I'm sure that I am his sheep. I know his spirit's in me and I hear his word. Through his spirit, I, I reject old sinful desires and they're being killed. And I have new righteous desires. And all these sort of things are the abundant life we have in Jesus. So let me end again with Psalm. Let me read Psalm 23. Think about it through this, this lens. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is the Lord your shepherd? Are you listening to him? Are you eating of his green pastures? Let's pray.